Please be seated. Well, this summer we're going to take a break from a series that we've been doing for the past few months uh, through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, And what we're going to do this summer is we're going to take a little tour through some stories in the Old Testament. And we're going to try and hit actually a lot of different genres this summer that show up in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at some history, some law, some songs, some major prophets and minor prophets. And um, by the way, our summer pastoral intern that we made a couple of announcements about is is coming soon, getting in town this Friday, and uh, he'll be um, he'll be joining me in this series. So we'll be doing this series together, um, and so hopefully um, we'll all be blessed uh, by what we see. Uh, throughout this tour through the Old Testament. But here's the deal. Why, why do this? <laughs> you know, why survey the Old Testament like this? Um, you know, I'm always telling you, and I've told you many, many times, uh, that the Bible is this one book uh, made up of a number of other books and plenty of genres. But the Bible, it is all about Jesus. There is one main character. There is one hero in all the stories, and it's Jesus. Every smaller story fits into this grand story of the entire Bible. And so every story breathes and whispers the name of Jesus. I mean, it's real simple. This is why we're looking at the Old Testament, so that we can see Jesus there. Um, And the first story that we're looking at is from this passage that we read earlier in our service that comes from Genesis chapter 2. And it might be a familiar story to some of you, but it is an intriguing story. It's a fascinating story. It's puzzling. It's frightening. Um, It's a riveting story. Um, And like every story in the Bible, it also breathes and whispers the name of Jesus to us. Last week, as some of you uh, know, or or the week before last, I was down in Florida speaking at our denomination's annual um, college ministry conference called the RUF Summer Conference or Reformed University Fellowship. And on the way down to this conference, as we were driving in the car with our kids, um, my wife made a genius move, pure genius on her part. And she bought for my two oldest kids the movie The Princess Bride and let them watch it on the way down to summer conference. And they watched it probably four times uh, on the way down there and on the way back. Love the story. Um, kept them occupied, so it was genius for us. Uh, but it's also just a... Wonderful story, uh, one of the best movies ever, if you've seen it. But if you've seen it, you know the movie starts like this, right? There's this little boy played by a very young Fred Savage, and he is at home, sick, uh, from staying at home from school. He's sick, and he's in the bed. And so his grandfather, played by Peter Falk, he comes over to his house, sits down by his bed to read him this story, the story of the Princess Bride, right? And if you've seen the movie, you know that occasionally the story itself would stop, right? Because see, that's what the movie is. The movie is this story that's coming to life on the screen. It's coming to life in the imagination of this kid. But occasionally this this story would stop um, and, and come back to this child in his room with his grandfather sitting next to his bed reading this story. And every time the story would stop and come back to this scene, it was because it, was, it had been interrupted by this little boy. 
See, uh, they would be reading along the story and a character would die, right? Or, uh, or, or there was some unexpected twist in the story. Or there was tension in the story that seemed impossible to resolve. And this little boy, he would stop the story and he would say to his grandfather, he'd say, wait, stop the story. Grandpa, you messed it up. You know, so-and-so can't die or this can't happen. Um, and, and patiently, the grandfather would encourage his grandson just to wait and keep listening to the story unfold. See, when it comes to Genesis chapter 22, it's hard for us not to cheat this story because we already read it and we know how it turns out. We know the end. But I want to encourage you not to cheat the story and to really try and let it unfold and imagine the confusion, the unexpected twist, right, the, uh, that's brought into Abraham's life when he is told by God to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. I mean, imagine the seemingly irresolvable tension in this story that if you don't cheat it, it really does make you want to say, stop. Wait, a, you messed up this story. God couldn't have asked Abraham to do that. And this is why this is why you need to do that, because yours and mine, our lives, they unfold like stories. Right. And in real life, in the moment, we are often caught wondering, how can I trust and follow a God who does these kind of things, who doesn't make any sense to me at the moment? How do you trust him with the mysterious, unexpected twists that he brings into your life? The suffering, the hardship, the seemingly irresolvable tension in your life. How do you follow him in your family, in your work, in your, with your money, in your tricky and complicated relationships? Especially when you strain forward, right? When you strain to guess at the consequences of following a God as mysterious as this and as puzzling as this. How do you trust a mysterious God like this? I want to talk about it with these three points this morning. Face questions, face paths, and face provision. First, face questions. And I want, and I want basically to show you two questions in this story. One is a question of experience, and the other is a deeper question about God's character. God says to Abraham in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, look, to be honest, this is why trusting a mysterious God is full of questions. It's because in the twists and in the confusion and in the tension, it sometimes feels like sometimes feels like in real life that the God who is supposed to be saving you. It feels like he's killing you. Your son, your only son, the son whom you love. I mean, the brief backstory is this. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they were old. Past the point of childbearing years, right? Some of you remember this story. When God came to them and promised to give them a son, and it seemed ridiculous to them just to hear that promise of God. I mean, the Bible tells us that Sarah just laughed at it. It seems so far-fetched, right? But even in their old age, God, God kept his promise and gave them this son, Isaac. And listen, it's hard for us, I think, to feel in our guts and really understand the weight of this because we live in an individualistic society and culture. But in this culture, 
Family was everything. Individual accomplishment, success, status, position meant nothing in this culture. Family was identity. Family lived on through the firstborn son. The firstborn son is what secured a family's status and position and future and stood in line to inherit absolutely everything. But even more than that, Isaac was more than just a son to Abraham and Sarah. God promised to build a nation through Isaac. I mean, God promised to bring salvation to the world through this son. And God comes to Abraham with this repetitive, pointed language highlighting all of this. Offer not just your son Isaac, Abraham, your son, your only son, the son who you love, the son you absolutely cherish, the son you absolutely delight in, the one in whom your hope rests. Offer him to me. See, there, there's the question. What? I mean, somebody must have messed up the story. I mean, this can't be not Isaac, right? And I think, what about our lives when they seem to be crumbling around us? What about your life when the things you cherish so deeply in this life are put in jeopardy? You say, you want, to, you want me to let go and trust you, to let go of this relationship, to let go and not defend my reputation at the office, to let go and trust you even when it means that I'm going to miss that promotion, even when it means I might be fired? You want me to let go and trust you when my security is on the line, when my, chil- my children's futures seem to be at risk here? And you see, we start thinking, I thought, I thought you meant me good in this life. But these twists, this tension, it feels like you're trying to kill me. But listen, there's still a deeper question in this story. And I would say that this really is the ultimate question in this story. And you've probably already begun to feel the tension in it. God's command here, God's command to Abraham and his promise to Abraham, they seem to be in total contradiction with one another. I mean, how in the world can this command and his promise actually fit together? The theologian Emil Bruner calls what we are talking about here the central mystery of Christian revelation. See, how to command and promise, right? How to justice and mercy, how to holiness and love, how does law and grace fit together, right? Abraham certainly felt this tension. You know, after God's command, right, Abraham looked up, loaded up and he took Isaac with him on this journey to this unknown place to offer his son. By the way, this is like a 45 mile trip for them to take. Right. And they're walking (laughs) plenty of time to mull over these questions. Right. Plenty of time to contemplate consequences. Right. And try to figure things out. And when they get to the point where just Abraham and Isaac would be going on alone in verse seven, Isaac asked his father this. Behold the fire in the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And, and, and what did Abraham say to him? He said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And I don't listen. I don't want to downplay the faith involved in it. In that answer to his son. But listen at the same time. He's just saying this to Isaac. I don't know. You know I don't know Isaac. I, I don't know how this fits. I don't know how God. Can be the God of command. And of promise. God is a mystery to me right now. You know how, 
you know how you watch kids and they're, they're learning how to stack building blocks, right, in the nursery or in, in the playroom at your house or whatever, one on top of the other. And the older they get, the better they get at it, right? And they learn that the, the stronger, the more solid, the more firm the foundation, the higher they can stack the blocks, right? The blocks on the top, they are dependent on the blocks underneath the foundation. When you first hear these questions side by side, they seem unrelated, right? You start, you started tracking with me through the questions of experience, you know. I, yeah, I know what it's like to scratch my head and wonder, you know, God, I thought you were supposed to save me when it feels like you're killing me in life. But this next question put beside it, it seems unrelated to that because it seems so abstract and it seems philosophical, right? How do justice and mercy, holiness and love, command and promise fit? Now, I've got to let the natural tension of the story remain and unfold for you. But those questions, they are not meant to be side by side, right? It's, they are meant to be one on top of the other. It's the deeper question that seems abstract and philosophical right now to you that is the foundation for the question of experience. See, only when you answer the deeper question, how command and promise fit together, Can you begin to answer the question of experience and stand on top of it and not fall and crumble under its weight? It's when you answer the deeper question that you can begin tracing joy through the pain that's in your life. Answer the foundational question and you can start tracing hope through trial, certainty, through chaos. But you have to have the foundation down. Okay, let's leave it there for a moment and keep going. Second, let's look at faith's path. Abraham shows us here the path that faith, faith takes in the midst of all the bewildering questions and painful tension. And the path that faith takes is to follow God's call, not knowing where it's going to lead, not knowing how it's going to turn out. In verse 2, God says, take Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. Where? God says, I'll tell you later, right? To one of the mountains, I will show you. Earlier in Abraham's life, but still as an elderly man, God did something very, very similar to Abraham. He said, Abraham, this is in Genesis 12, verse 1. He said, go and leave your home, leave your stuff, leave your family, leave your father's house. Where? God says, I'll tell you later. To the land I will show you. You see this, God says... Leave your comfort, leave your security, leave what you know. Let go and give up what you most love and cherish in this life. What is God asking Abraham to do in the seemingly irresolvable contradictions of life? And what is God asking you to do when illness threatens your life or the life of someone you love? What is God asking you to do when obeying him most certainly means that your career will be put in jeopardy? What is God asking you to do when speaking the truth to one of your friends will most certainly damage your reputation among your peers? When the consequence of following him looks like your whole life will crumble and fall apart. He is asking you to let go and give up what you most love and cherish and follow him, not knowing where it will lead, not knowing how it will turn out. And do you know why? It's because he wants you to see That he is the ultimate treasure in life. And he is not a means to get your treasure. There's a show on on, on PBS that is strangely addictive if you happen to land on it. You would never purposely probably watch it. But if you land on it, you might stay there for a few minutes. Um, And it's called the Antique Roadshow. And it's kind of like the nerdy forerunner of like American Pickers and stuff like that. But 
is these people bringing in family heirlooms and treasures that may have been hidden in the attic for for years, right? And they bring these treasures to these appraisers to find out their monetary value. And so, for example, someone might bring in a beautiful painting that has been hidden in in the attic of their family for years, right? And the appraiser, he'll discuss the age of this painting, you know, and its condition and the artist and all this kind of stuff. And then at the end, the appraiser might say something like, this picture here that's been in your attic all this time, it's worth like $35,000 or something like that. And, you know, people are wild, they're amazed, all that stuff. But it's really cool and it's really beautiful when, and even surprising when the owner says, oh, I would never sell it, not even for 35000 or $40,000 or whatever. I just wanted to learn its true value and worth, right? The money, the monetary value is just a reaffirmation of the value of the treasure, but they ultimately, they aren't interested in using it to get something else. And that's what's beautiful about it, right? They treasure it for its beauty alone, right? They simply love to adore it. They would never think of using it to get something else. God wants Abraham, God wants you to see And wants you to know and feel deep in your bones that he is the only treasure you need. He is the treasure, not a means to get your treasure. See, there are these things in our lives that we start to see as non-negotiables, right? For my life to have joy, for my life to have meaning and significance to be fulfilling, I have to have these things. I can't let go of them. They're non-negotiable. And most of the time... Those tend to be very good things in our lives, things that we have turned into ultimate non-negotiable things. For Abraham, it was his only son. And for you, it might be a secure position in your career, a, a good reputation among your peers, a stable family life without any drama or a spouse that will complete you and quench your thirst for companionship, a bank account that's sufficiently padded to make you feel comfortable and secure in this life. Are you beginning to see what God is doing with Abraham? He is taking the non-negotiable of his life, the treasure of his life, the son he loves, the son who has become his emotional center and his foundation in his life, the son who is his hope. And God is saying, I want you to find out that I am the only treasure you need in this life. This is the path of faith. I want you to follow me, not knowing how it's going to turn out, what you might get in return. I want you to follow me to find the one true treasure, the one foundation that can never crumble beneath your feet. Reputation, bank accounts, right? Relationships, they're constantly fluctuating in, their, in your lives and in mine. Even though you have come to see them as non-negotiables, they're not strong enough to hold you up and they are not strong enough to last forever in your life. Real quick, the author of Hebrews, he comments on Abraham's faith It says that he was able to leave not knowing where God would lead for this. He says, for Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder was God himself. God wants you to see that he is the ultimate treasure, the only foundation that can be in your life that will never fluctuate up and down or pass away. You see, you and I, we will never be great like Abraham. You can never be courageous like Abraham, right? You can never live the kind of life Abraham lived 
unless you are willing to let go, unless you give up your conditions and follow God, not knowing where it will lead, are you, are you, if you, only if you do that, are you ready are, and are you really following him and not just using him as a means to get your smaller passing and fading treasures in this life? Now, finally, let's look at faith's provision here. We'll try and bring all this together. When you get to verse 9, if this were a scene in a movie, everything would be an ultimate slow motion here. I mean, that's how the writer intentionally has written this. He's slowing things down. And you can almost imagine if this were a movie, you know, the camera giving you different, uh, different angles as the scene progresses in slow motion, right? A, a close-up of Abraham's conflicted face and then to Isaac's bewildered and confused face, right? And back to Abraham. And then, and, and then, then Isaac, you know, he's bound and he's laid on the wood there on the top of the altar, and then Abraham reaching for his life. In the Hebrew, it, it literally says it like this. It's so, so very slow. Abraham sent his hand out and took the knife to ruin his son. That's what it says literally. Everything slowed down for dramatic effect. So you can feel it. And then a voice, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And this voice said to him, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then in verse 13, Abraham looked up and he saw this ram caught in a thicket. See, a burnt offering was provided instead of, in the place of, Abraham's son. Now, now listen. It was a test, right? We're told that in the passage at the beginning. This story shows us faith in action. And our instinct, your instinct and mine, is to take this passage and say, all right, yeah, let's be like Abraham. <laughs> you know? What an example of faith for us. And it was a test. And the story does show us faith. But that is not the main point of the story. How, how do we know that's not the main point of the story? Didn't it say in the very first verse that that's what God was doing, testing Abraham? So we should be like Abraham when we're tested. Yeah, okay. But st that's not the main point. Because if it was, if it was the main point, you see, Abraham, he would have named that mountain something different. He would have called it Abraham's faith. Abraham's obedience, right? Abraham's courage. But he doesn't. He names the mountain, verse 14, the Lord will provide. And that is the point of this story. The Lord will provide. But listen, it's not a just, just a general, you know, cross-stitched in your house. You know, the Lord will provide, whatever that means. This, it's couched in a story. The Lord will provide a substitute for Isaac. The Lord provided a burnt offering in the place of Isaac. Do you know what God is showing Abraham in this story? He's showing him this. Abraham, Abraham. In me, all the contradictions meet. All the contra apparent contradictions meet and are resolved. Because look, that is the bigger, deeper question. How can God be both the God of command and the God of promise, the God of law and of grace, right? The law, the justice and mercy, holiness and love. Because years later, on a mountain, God provided a substitute. A substitute who would satisfy both God's command and His promise. 
His justice and His love, His holiness and His grace. On the cross, Jesus, who had fulfilled God's law perfectly, He died in your place and mine to satisfy justice. On the cross, Jesus, who had fulfilled God's law perfectly, died so that He could love you forever and ever. On our way down to Florida, um, our family stayed the night in a hotel in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, trying to break up the trip. And in the hotel that night... I read my son, William, uh, one of the Star Wars books that he brought down on this trip. And he, like all six-year-old boys should be, is totally in love with Star Wars. Star Wars, everything. Legos, all, all the stuff. He loves it. Um, and we're not talking about those goofy new ones that they made. We're like classic 70s and 80s Star Wars, the real thing, right? Um, Look, I've told you this many times before that every good story is in some way trying to copy this story in Genesis chapter 22 in the story of the Bible. Because look, the stories that hit you in the deepest places of your life, of your heart, are stories of substitutionary sacrifice. Lame is easy, right? It's that we use all the time. Lord of the Rings, easy. More current stories, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games. I mean, those, those books, they, why do they sell so much? Because they are filled with substitutionary sacrifice. It's running, that's the theme running through them all, right? The Princess Bride is another great one, if you know the story. But sitting in that hotel room reading Star Wars, I'm reminded of uh, how this theme is in Star Wars too, right? I don't know if you remember that scene in Star Wars where Luke and Princess Leia and Han Solo, they are trying to escape the Death Star, right? And Obi-Wan Kenobi, he has stayed back to disengage the tractor beam or something like that. Just stay with me. It'll be worth it, I promise. Anyway, he winds up in this lightsaber, Obi-Wan winds up in this lightsaber fight with Darth, Darth Vader as his friends are trying to escape. And in the end, in this scene, he stops fighting. And to save his friends, he voluntarily sacrifices himself. He puts the lightsaber down and lets Darth Vader kill him so his friends can go free. But see, I had forgotten the last words that Obi-Wan spoke to Darth Vader before he put this lightsaber away and sacrificed himself. And it's so very, very gospel. (laughs) Right Right before Darth Vader struck him down, and maybe you've forgotten the words too, he said this, You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful you can possibly imagine how completely upside down is the kingdom of God. He says, let go of your treasures. And only then will you find a treasure that lasts forever. Right? His son laid down his life for you. And it looked like a total loss. But in doing so, he released a power greater than we could have possibly imagined. After Abraham passed this test, God said to him, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham saw a shadow on that day, a whisper of Jesus' name. We have seen the substance, the real thing, when God did not spare, did not withhold his son, his only son, from us, but gave him up. That all the contradictions might meet at the cross. Holiness and love, grace and justice. And that we might have life in him. And here's how the power comes in. When you look at the cross, 
the place of sacrifice and can say. Now I know that you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. When you see that holiness and love, law and grace meeting at the cross for you, you can trace joy through pain, hope through trial, certainty through chaos, knowing that when God is prying your non-negotiable idols from your hands, it is never to kill you, even though it may feel like that. It is only to make you greater. It is only to give you a foundation that will never pass away. And you know that it's not to kill you. You know that it's not to forsake you. Because he did that once on the cross. And it can, that, therefore, it can only feel like that in your life. If you can look and say, now I know, despite what I'm feeling in my life, now I know that you love me. That you love me so much. That you would not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this story that every good story that is trying to capture our hearts is really just trying to copy. This story of a substitute for us. A story of a Savior who came to satisfy holiness and love. Law and grace, justice and mercy at the cross. Father, in the midst of the chaos and the seemingly irresolvable tension in our lives, we often question you, we often turn to you and say, what in the world are you doing? I thought you meant me good but it feels like you're killing me. Father, we pray that beneath that question we'll come back to this story and remember that it cannot be that you are forsaking your people for you forsook your Son in our place that we might have life in Him and have it forever. And Father, we pray that we would take this into the trials of our lives when the non-negotiable idols of our lives are being stripped away from us, and it feels so painful, it feels like it's killing us at times, Father, we pray that you would give us faith to see Jesus on that cross, giving up everything, then we might have life in Him, so that we might obey you even in the most difficult circumstances of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.